0: Well, good morning, church. And uh, if you would grab your Bibles, turn to Second Samuel chapter five. Second Samuel chapter five. If you use one of the Bibles behind the seats, there I believe it's page two forty. Um, we're going to be covering two chapters today, two t- chapters, uh, chapters five and six, and digging into them. One of our shared values as a church is intensely vertical, intensely vertical. And the song we just sang, uh, "Worthy is the Lord of all the glory forever." Holy is the Lord, crowned in glory. I got to tell you, that is intensely vertical. It is deep. It is theologically strong. It has just got a lot to it. And I want to carry that intensely vertical into our text today. Um, The text we're in has a whole bunch of movements in it. And it would be very easy to get lost in all of the movements. And in fact, if I were kind of teaching more of a classroom setting through 2 Samuel, I would probably be teaching a lot about through each of these uh, various vignettes or these little things that are there. But I think there's something bigger going on. I agree with Dale Ralph Davis. There's something bigger going on in these two chapters that's trying to put this information on the table because they're not in chronological order. That's not the point of it. Chronology history telling is not the point of it. Something else is trying to be done there, something for us to see, something for us to grab a hold of, and it moves into two responses at the end of it, and Lord willing, we'll be able to pull this together. So I don't want to overdo you with too much data. We're just gonna dive in and go at it. So God help us, amen, in all of this. Uh, so if I were to give you a task of, say, putting together... Uh, six vignettes in a collage, Uh, what would be pictures you would grab from your household? If it's like the task is just pull some images together, put them in in like six little framings and put them on the wall and, and have them tell kind of the story of you or of your household with that. If you were to do that, the the first and foremost thing would not be your feeling like I've got to tell the movement in a chronological order of what's going on. That's not the point of it. The point is you're actually trying to tell some information about the whole, the whole of your household, let's call it that. Uh, like, let me give you an example. I actually did this this week with uh, this church. And uh, so I pulled together kind of six uh, vignettes of, of, of our church. And uh, these are the ones, you can see them on the screen or on the screen here next to me. And, and each of these six, uh, some of them have one picture. Like, these are some of our pastor's kids when we were uh, first building the building. Like, I can just tell you, they are a lot bigger than that now. And it's like a time frame. Here, this first picture here, I just love one of my very favorite pictures in all of our church history. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Um, it is before we ever had a church service, and this was over at one of our family's homes and in their basement, and there was just like a dozen or 15 of us praying on our knees to the Lord that the Lord might do something with that. And then we have a, a picture with it. It's not a timeline, but look what God's done. Uh, in people's lives, and it could go around, this is back in the theater days, and this is some pictures of some of our people internationally uh, in St. Vincent and Romania and and building the church, and just things that have been taking place here. And it's like, uh, all of those are there, not in chronology, but to tell a story, and also to give a feel for what's been happening. And God's been good, and God's been doing some amazing, amazing things with that. And I actually think that's kind of what's going on in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. The author, the human author of Samuel is putting together these non-chronological order things at this particular time because this is the time when David becomes king of both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Judah and of the house of Israel. And he becomes king there. And this is a pivotal moment. And I think in this, the, the author is putting some things for us to get some picture of some things that only the spirit of God could do that later on as redemptive history unfolds, we see more of that happening. Uh, We'll we'll pull that together. God help me do that. Uh, Vignette number one of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let's begin. Let's build this collage out here. Let me read verses 1 through 5, chapter 5. Then, which is uh, prior to what was taking place. Then all the tribes of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, that's the house of Israel, came to David. Remember, uh, David it was anointed. David was installed as king of Judah, the, the southern uh, house. And now the northern household is coming to David. And they said to him, behold, we are your uh, bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. They're just making these amazing statements of David, uh, you're our guy. And we see that God has been moving and what we know what God has done. Verse three, so all the elders of the northern kingdom, uh, household of Israel, came to the king of Hebron at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed, they installed David king over the northern uh, kingdom. Verse four, David was how old? Man, I'm almost 60 here, and I'm like, dude, Uh, cool, very cool. Hey, young folks, the Lord can use you big. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and for 40, he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is a huge paragraph in the time of movement of God's redemptive plans. You go back a thousand years ago, almost r- very close to a thousand years from this point in time, you're back in the time of Abraham, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Uh, God uh, chooses Abraham. Abraham, uh, I'm gonna covenant myself to you and, and I'm going to uh, build a, a nation out of you and, and that you are gonna be a blessed people and you are going to be a blessing giving people and I'm going to give you a place and and all of that and you advance forward a thousand years and all of a sudden here we're we're, we're with David. And, and we connect that even from 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel comes to David and out of the sheep pens. And uh, David wasn't looking to be in this position. David's just taking care of sheep he loved. And, and he's like, no, you're going to be king. And then after all this time, he comes in and it's like, man, I'm telling you folks, this is one of those boom moments in redemptive history. David is now becoming the king of Judah and Israel, all coming together. And if I could say it this way, I'll say it this way. What was promised is now being fulfilled. David was the promised king back in 1 Samuel 16. And now after some 10, 13, 15 years, we have the promised king in place. And it's a huge, huge moment, vignette one. Vignette number two, it's the second paragraph in chapter five, verses six through 10. King David, I'm just gonna summarize it. King David and his men head to Jerusalem in verse six. The Jebusites uh, inhabit Jerusalem. I won't go into the details of who they are, but David and his men are going to go take it over from them. Uh, Verse 7, to take the stronghold of Zion, the city of David, what's going to be called the city of David. And and verse 9, David lives there and expands that area. And then verse 10, chapter 5, and David became greater and greater. And note, there's no period there. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Hey, David didn't become greater and greater because David was some 30-year-old prodigy, crazy, awesome leader dude. Okay, that's not what it was. David became in that position as a 30 year old with what he was doing and David became greater and greater because God was doing that through David. It's not the time to pat David on the back. It's actually the time to pray for David because of what's taking place and God is doing a work through this young man. And there's a truth in this for us, friends. We're told by the world that if you just keep working harder and harder by your own strength, I mean, if you just got the full goods, the full package of it, if you just keep going and going and going, and you just think it hard enough, and you just wish it hard enough, one day you will get it. I'm gonna tell you, ever since a kid, I've wanted a jet. And I don't have one. (laughs) Just so, if you're wondering. And yet it's one of those things, wait, wait, Who's the source behind all that is happening in David's life? Uh, Sunday school answer is God is. And that's on the table for us. And I think in all this, it reminds us, I'm kind of calling this, David is the enduring king. David has endured so much over the time. One commentator says it, just listen as I read it, he says, David has weathered the venom of Saul, the follies of David himself, latter, I think, chapters of 1 Samuel, the rebellion of the north, the self-seeking sojourner Amalekite, and I'll add Abner and Ba and Ra from last week, because he says, Yahweh's promise was proved firm in the face of every opposition. David was an enduring young man because David leaned into the Lord who carried him through. And there's something for us to learn in both of those. And just pause here for a second. David is the promised king, now seated, David is the enduring king who is the one who withstood opposition and rejection. Uh, I'm just gonna put this out there. Keep thinking, who might this be pointing to? Vignette number three. Paragraph number three, verses 11 through 12. King Hiram of Tyre, uh, that's like Goodyear or something like that over in that area, of Tyre, sends a craftsman and supplies to build David a house in the city of David. By the way, uh, just so you know, this is not the event that happened right in chronological movement. This happened after some time, after they came in and settled in Jerusalem, that this begins taking place. I bring that up again because the point of the the writer is not to tell us a chronological movement of something. There's something bigger to be known. So he just puts this event in uh, here. Let me read verse 12 out of that. And David David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. By the way, every leader, every parent needs to hear this. David, we could say, came to understand that he was to be a servant king. As you just think over history that you might know, what king, what queen in the time of history, took that role for the sole objective of the people. I mean, I just have to tell you, it's rare And yet here, David has this understanding that David is in the seat that he is in, not because David is awesome, but because the Lord God that Yahweh put him there and that he is even staying. As a 30-year-old young man, I'm just telling you, if you're in this seat, this is the time to get cocky and arrogant and like you got it all. And David is understanding in this role that no, no, he is here in a unique role for God's people. Boom, dude, so much respect. I want to be like that. And let's be frank about it. Parents, leaders, business owners, managers, pastors, it's easy to take your position and say it's about others when at the heart of it, it's really about you, me, Watch our hearts. Watch our hearts. Promised king, enduring king, servant king, vignette four, paragraph four, verses 13 to 16. Now it's awkward. I'm just gonna pause here for a second and say this. One of the reasons I prefer teaching through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons I actually enjoy going back to the Old Testament, is because times when we follow it through, and it forces us to have to teach on some things that are uncomfortable, and I'm telling you, there's some uncomfortable things, not only right here in this paragraph, but in chapter six. Frankly, I could just prefer to gloss over this, but it's there, and I think it's here for a purpose, What am I saying? We have in this paragraph, just like placed in here, like why would it be placed in here? Because it's placing in here to tell us that David has a boatload of wives and concubines. It's actually, I think, looking ahead and knowing not at the time when they take Jerusalem, but some years later, it's making this uh, reflection back and including in right at this point, this thing that David has a boatload of wives and concubines. And you're like, what? And I'm like reading this and I'm like, oh, crud. I'm going to suggest it's inserted there by the Spirit of God to remind us that David is an imperfect king. Because when you just get moving along with this, it's just like David's awesome. Oh, now he's awesomer. Now, now he's the awesome awesomest. And then all of a sudden like, wah, You're like, what? Like, David, really? And dude, I have to read it and teach on it and make people mad at me for it. And it's kind of like, yeah. Because don't get caught up in David. David's messed up too. And that's actually encouraging. Vignette number five, the final two paragraphs of the chapter. Verses 17 to 25. Bottom line, the Philistines learn that David is now king. He's consolidating his power. That means it's not good for them because they're next-door neighbors, so they go hunting after David. By the way, how interesting, David lived in Philistine territory for like a year and a half. It's interesting how all this unfolds. David inquires of the Lord in verse 19 and in verse 23. He follows Yahweh's guidance. Uh, the attacking Philistines lose. And I just want to note two verses, verse 20. And it says, and of David, the Lord burst through my enemies like a bursting flood. By the way, that is cool imagery. It's not like the Lord came down and threw some God wiffle dust and just made everything nice. No, 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 it, it is the Lord burst through my enemies before, right before me, like a bursting flood. And then add verse 20. And that the Lord had gone out before him to strike down that army of the Philistines. And in all of this, I think as you go through, and you can read through it more, I'm just putting these things out for you, intending for you to read through it more. David is seeing himself and seeing God as the protector of his people. David is functioning as that. He is a protector king. But he also understands that the Lord God is the protector king. Which, by the way, brings us to an intense vertical moment. Who else might all of this be pointing us to? The promised king. Genesis chapter three. Right after sin, God's not caught off guard. He will send someone born of the woman, dealt a bruising blow by Satan, that deals Satan a lethal blow. And that person, that one, is Jesus Christ. The promised king has come. And that promised king, by the way, reigns, Ephesians chapter 2, reigns and is seated. Oh, and then the enduring king. Who was the one that was opposed and rejected? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Oh, and who came? Second person of the Trinity, boots on the ground. Who was the one who came not to be served but to serve? Yeah, Jesus. And who was the one who was tempted in every way? Oh, but Hebrews 4 15. Oh, but here's the difference was the perfect king, Jesus Christ. There's the game changer. And then who was the one who's the protector of his people? Jesus. And by the way, that, ba- that king went to the cross for his people to strike down and burst through the enemy like a bursting flood out of the text. Do you see this king? Do you know this king? Friends, I am not talking about some hippie sandaled dude who got in a little over his religious head And was a political, nah, rebel rouser. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the promised king, the enduring king, the servant king, the perfect king, the protector king, who came to die on the cross to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And whoever would humble themselves and see that they are in fact imperfect, in need of a perfect king, and by grace through faith in Christ alone, receiving him, he will burst through and strike down and make you his. And out of this text, David is being seated as the king of the, these kingdoms, and yet, boom. We have the blessing of looking back and seeing right as David is being seated That there was a perfect one. The son of David, as the New Testament calls him. But it doesn't stop there. There's one more vignette, chapter six. It's the vignette is of David getting the ark and it's followed by a response to it all. The ark, the ark of the covenant. Oh, call it this. It was an Old Testament piece of furniture. But it was much more than that. It was a sacred box that God instructed his people to build. No, Uh-oh. this box was like three and a half feet by about two and a quarter feet by about one and a half feet. It's not all that impressive. I mean, I would think if God's going to build something to be impressive, boom, he would go big. But it's really not that big. It's intended to be portable. And uh, back in Exodus, I believe, 25, where we see the instruction for it, it's got these poles, and one of those things includes it. They're never to touch it. And in all of this, uh, historically, one of the cool things about the whole Ark of the Covenant, of which we're not all that impressed with, unless you've watched the uh, original Indiana Jones movie, at the end of it, then you get impressed with the Ark. But until that, seriously, I think one of our... uh, sad things is we're not that impressed by the ark. But the ark represents the very power and presence of God. And what would happen is, is that uh, back in the desert uh, moving times of Moses and the Hebrews, that when they would pick the ark up to begin moving it on out, Moses would declare, advance, O Lord! I just think that's cool. You know, they, they put the poles through it so they can't, so they don't have to touch the ark as they've been instructed, and they, advance, O Lord! And then when they come, and they come to the next desert spot and have camp, and they set it down, and and Moses would declare, return, O Lord! It's like, God, do your plan in all that. It's just a very cool illustration of what's all taking place and who our God is. The Ark represents the power and the presence of God and where the Ark was, was represented as that's where the power and the presence of God is. Listen, it wasn't for God, it was for God's people. And how it was set up is when they would come to a camp, they they would set the Ark inside the the, the portable uh, temple, the tabernacle, and then around all of that, God had all of the 12 tribes three on kind of each side and and so what is in the very center of it all at the very epicenter of it all is 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 the is the tabernacle and the thing representing the presence and the power of god is the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant is at the very center of god's people and i'm telling you that imagery preaches and that's why god had it that way That Yahweh, his presence, his manifest presence, his power is to be at the very center position of God's people. Verse 1 chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of, of Israel, 30,000, and David arose went with all the people who were with him uh, from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab. I don't have the time that it was not in their uh, care, and David's like, listen, I'm Set up as king now, I want God's power and presence at the very center. Very cool. Way to go, David. And so he sees that happen. David wants it to have where the presence of God is there. The present king is among his people. The present king. Emmanuel means God with us. And I think you cannot now look and as in this time of redemptive history and not look back at the ark and go, it's pointing to the Emmanuel one, when the power and presence of God will be with. And so, big picture, David is installed as king. The two separate houses, the house of Judah, the house of Israel, are coming together under David. This is a huge moment in history in the Old Testament. And what commonly happens with God's people, even with God now at the very epicenter among his people, what commonly happens over some time? Answer, God's people get comfortable with God. And God becomes their boyfriend. God becomes their best bud. And we just get kind of comfortable with God. Well, What happens next? Verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Basically, they were rocking out. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had brought out, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, that terminology again. And that place is called Perez, Uzzah, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? (laughs) This is one of those texts that makes God very unmarketable. in modern day and how we do things. And I understand. And by the way, it encourages me that David's like, what? Like, God, what was with that? By the way, isn't it interesting, just in our thinking, in that moment, how we have this way that we seem to put ourselves above God and judge God? Isn't that interesting? But, God in his grace allows us to do that, allows us to lean in and even push back. And I just want to say, I am not here to, to defend God, and I am not here to make God palatable. I am here to learn about God and to teach about God. And so in this text, I just ask the question, what can we learn about God? So in Exodus 25, God established the rules about transporting his ark. By the way, it was the Lord's ark, and he gets to set the rules. And one of the rules with that was is that no one was to ever touch it. Uzzah touches the ark. He's well-intentioned. I would have done the same thing. It's falling over. This is like God's thing. I don't want it to get dirty. But you see, we have a wrong understanding of what is dirty. Dirty. See, Uzzah, uh, and trust me, I don't blame him at all. I would have done the same thing. But Uzzah in this whole thing, as we sit back and think, wait a second, we just sang earlier that God is holy, that he is set apart, that he is unlike. And out of that, when we get comfortable, we think we can touch God's stuff. And and what should have happened in that nanosecond is as it begins to fall, Uzzah's like, I can't touch, I can't touch, I can't touch. I mean, we do that with our kids. Don't touch the glass. Don't touch it. And Uzzah in this moment here, by the way, Uzzah is in this position of carrying the ark, which means Uzzah was, I would say, spot on with the Lord. They're just not grabbing some pagan and having them carry this. So let me add this. If Uzzah were standing here today, uh, as I've thought about this, I fully believe that Uzzah today is with the Lord. And at that moment, when God, I'll term it this way, when God took him out, At that moment, Uzzah was with the Lord. And why do we think that that's so bad? Like, man, he lost out. (laughs) Like, what are we thinking? Friends, we see life so five, six feet off the ground. Life is three-dimensional. And I'll say, if Uzzah were to come back here today and be among us, I think he would stand before us and he'd probably have five, four comments. One, I think he would say, I was wrong to have touched the ark. Two, I think he would have said that God dealt with him rightly. And I would be sitting there going, I'm still not getting it, buddy. But I think he would say that. Third, I think that he would say, by God's grace, he is fully with the Lord, and trust me, I'm fine. I'm just like really good. Please don't send me back. I think that Uzzah would say I'm just going to tell you God sovereignly did a something in my life to teach his people that when God says don't touch God means don't touch and right at this time in the history of redemptive history with David you have all this taking place and it is right in this moment where God just like gives this bam don't get sloppy there's a word in that friends because it's stunning how we just have this way of thinking that we can come and judge God. Thomas and Greer sums it up this way. Uzzah's touch represents a failure to understand his own sinfulness. Uzzah saw the ark headed to the dirt and reached out because he assumed his hand was less dirty than the ground. Most of us would have done the same. But think of this. The earth has never committed the blasphemy of rejecting God's authority. The earth has always obeyed the commandments of God. Dirt could never pollute the ark, but the touch of sinful man could. He goes on, they go on. Uzzah did not understand this, so he tried uh, to do God a favor. David did not understand this, so he joined David in his frustration. But the reason we do not understand the judgment of God is that we do not understand the wickedness of our own sinfulness. Most of us think that hell, for instance, is too severe a punishment for sin. We tend to think that God's justice is an overreaction. The cross should remind us that our sin is unspeakably wicked. And God simply cannot allow an attitude of treason against him into his presence. I can't fully explain it all, but I know who God is And he did what was right. And it should cause a rightful fear. It should cause us to be a people of trembling worship. As one person said, it should cause us to have a holy delirium. Verse 14 And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant with shouting with the sound of the horn. Uh, Clearly, David got to the place where he's like, I can actually have a holy delirium, a trembling worship in light of who God is. David and Michael. I'm tight on time here, so I'm gonna summarize this. Verse 16, let me just touch it. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was brought up in a previous chapter, I didn't spend time with her there, but was uh, included in that uh, to, I think, keep her active in the movement uh, of the story at hand. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window, saw David, uh, King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Conversation goes on as as to what's happening. Let me jump down to verse twenty. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came uh, to meet David and said, "How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants' females, females, uh, as one of the vulgar fellows shamefully uncovers himself." David, that was out of line. Somebody that can understand what she's saying here. A king doesn't act like that. What are the people going to think? She grew up in Saul's house. We've come to learn this earlier this year a lot about Saul. And Saul became very consumed about what people thought, not about what God thought. And if I can say, she sure sounds like she's taken too much from her dad. David, all the people think? You are just out of bounds here. Verse 21, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all this house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes." But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. By the way, I don't think that was like a curse from God. I actually think that's telling us that basically her and David were done and there was no more relationship there. She had no children. You can spend some more time with that. But it's fascinating to me after all of this movement through, you come to this last, and you have two responses. One response is saying, hey, an intensely vertical response to who God is, like, that's quite radical and quite over-seemingly over the top for me, that's out of bounds. And then you have David, it's like... (laughs) It's not about this, it's about this. And this deserves a radical response. This is worthy of someone even thinking, I'm a little wackadoo with Jesus. Yeah, but what will they think? Who cares? This isn't teaching, it's all about physical exteriors. It's not teaching them. But out of a right heart, friends, there should be a radical response that's fitting with who God is. Have you had a radical response to the Lord? I mean the kind of response to where it's not just learning about God and admiring God and kudos, big man. But to the place and time to where you come to, you realize that God is holy and you are not, and it throws you face down on the ground, realizing that you are in eternal trouble. Because this is no joke with God's holiness. God is gracious, God is loving, and that is shown in the fact that you and I are even alive today that God puts up with this broken world today. But there is a time to where all will come and face the Lord. And there is a time to where the Lord, thank God, will end this mess. And it will be holiness unleashed. And has there come a time where you've come to realize your unholiness before a holy God and receive Christ as your savior, repenting of your sin and saying, "Lord, I'm done with that. I am desperate for you." Radically so. If there hasn't, oh friend, come to Jesus. Because at this stage of redemptive history, he's like this. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, if you don't know that you know that you know Christ is your savior, you need to talk with someone and we'd love to talk with you. But there is no more important decision in your entire life than that. And so God, I pray you would move as only you can move and you would work in lives the way that only you can work in lives. I don't want to be any kind of manipulator. I don't want to be the one who is causing someone to do something. I want you to do that. So, God, we trust that in your hands. And Lord, we've just seen this movement, this buildup of, of, of you at work in, in, in this time in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. And oh God, you are alive and at work today, even as broken, messed up people. And so we declare that and we crown you for who you are. We are in awe of you. So Lord God, we declare that. And we declare that unashamedly and intensely. In your name, amen.